leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. All right, take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 10 through 20 this morning. I am so glad as we sang this morning that I have a friend in Jesus, that I have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I have a friend that has done more than anyone could possibly do for anyone else, that loved me enough to give his life for me. And so what that means for all of us is that that we have a faith in the friendship that we have with Jesus, that we have a, a faith in the sacrifice that Jesus has made, that we have a, a faith that now drives everything, and now that relationship that we have with God through Christ, now it becomes the perspective, it becomes the filter by which we see everything else, and it determines our approach to everything else. So what that means then is if I have a friend in Jesus, it means that I have a faith, and that faith means that faith and fear cannot reside or cannot coincide. They can't go together. Faith always, always replaces fear. So whenever we come across a passage like the one we're going to come across this morning, what we're going to see is that faithful people, even people who have been called friends of God, just like Abram, that we can at times hit the panic button that we can at times allow our fear to replace our faith, that we can at times, if we're not very, very careful, be tempted to jettison what we know and to let our feelings determine what we should do next. This is exactly what we're going to encounter in this passage. You'll remember as we began this series last week that we encountered the call of Abram, that we saw the covenant that God made with Abram, and now, as we pick up the story, Abram is going to be tested yet again. And he is going to be tested this time by a great famine that's come into the promised land that he's been directed. And when this famine comes in, what we see is that a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. If you truly have a faith in God, then you are going to be tested it is a matter of fact some of you are walking through that test right now some of you have stepped into the famine right now and so because of that even friends of God need to prepare themselves for what they are going to do when the inevitable test come when the famines enter into our life let's see how Abram reacted let's stand together and read together Genesis chapter 12 we'll begin together reading in verse 10 now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, and they will let you live. So say you are my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her. 
and praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. Lord, teach us today that our faith in your call and your covenant cancels fear and produces courage. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And what we just prayed together this morning, that is our big idea, and you see it on the screens behind me. Our faith in God's call and covenant should cancel fear and produce courage. So, so let's give uh, a, a little test. Uh, whether you were here last week or maybe you're doing the Bible reading plan, and if you are, you've, you've already read this passage over the past few weeks together. So let me ask you this. When Abram received the call, remember he was a phrase from a place called Ur of the Chaldees. He made a long stop in a place called Haran. But where was he told to go? The promised land or Canaan. Where was he not told to go? Egypt. Yet when we open up the passage, immediately what we find is that Abram has been directed to the promised land. He's finally gotten to the promised land. He gets to the promised land, and immediately he faces a test. Now what you know is that it may not be famine, but every one of you is going to face some form of test or some form of famine, if you will. Those come in all shapes and varieties. Sometimes they're financial tests. Sometimes they're relational tests. Sometimes it's tests with your friends. Sometimes it's tests at church. Sometimes it's tests at work. But you are going to face a famine. And when you face that famine, the question is, is your faith then in God's call and your faith in God's covenant going to produce in you what it should produce, which is the courage to face the day, or do you allow your emotions to now control you and allow fear to take over your life? So what do we see that happens over the next few moments in Abram's life is incredibly important. Because God had gotten him all the way from Canaan to Ur, from all the way from Ur to Canaan. Now, Abram had to trust that the God who could get him to Canaan could keep him in Canaan. And you need to know this morning, if you're taking notes, this is not going to be on the screen, but this is huge. The will of God will never take you where the grace of God cannot keep you. The will of God, I'm going to say that again, the will of God will not take you where the grace of God cannot keep you. You see, friends, if God has called you to something, He's going to equip you for it. He's going to empower you for it. He's going to give you the gifting and the strength and the perseverance. Sometimes the situations, the famine around you, may tempt you to want to jettison what you were trusting before and start doing your own thing, but that's when things get dangerous. So when we think about, when we think about this, this issue of Egypt, all throughout Scripture, obviously Egypt is a real place. Egypt is obviously not the promised land. It is not Canaan. But throughout Scripture, what we see is that Egypt stands for an alliance with the world. Anytime they went to Egypt, 
It was relying on the world. It was relying on other powers. It was making treaties that God had not authorized. And so when Abram, we see this first with Abram, when he goes to Egypt, anytime someone goes to Egypt, it is ultimately trying to satisfy a spiritual need with a worldly resource. Every one of us has done it. You've known what it is to be spiritually bankrupt. I've, I've had the privilege over the last several weeks to have some conversations with some people that I'm so thankful that the Holy Spirit is convicting in their lives and in their heart because they've come to the realization that they've tried all these different things, but something is still wrong. There's still a, a hole. There, there's something there. And they've treated it every way they know how. And they've gotten advice from everybody they know how. And they've changed all these things in their life. But they can tell that something is still wrong. And if you've ever gone to Egypt, you know exactly what they're talking about. Because you've looked to the world to try to help you with your emotions and all of those needs. And relational needs and your medication needs and all of those nets. But when you go to Egypt to look for something that only the Lord can provide, you're going to find yourself empty and hollow. And he's that only the Lord can provide. You're going to find yourself empty and hollow. And he's gone to Egypt when God never told him to go to Egypt. If God could get him from Ur of the Chaldees to Canaan, then when he got to Canaan, God could have taken care of him in Canaan. Now, God's gotten you exactly to where you are. He's never left you. He's never forsaken you. How sinful is it to not trust God where you are when He has been with you every single step of the way up until now? Many people panic and they make ungodly decisions and those ungodly decisions have far-reaching effects. That's what Abram does. He packs up and he heads to Egypt and probably at this point hasn't even thought about what's going to take place when he gets to Egypt or what he's going to have to sacrifice or how he's going to have to compromise his integrity or what he's going to have to lie about. So he sets out on this journey. And as he goes, I believe that Abram is a lot like most people. I've never met anybody that woke up one day and said, you know what? Today I'm going to ruin my life. Today is the day that I'm going to compromise all of my morals. Today is the day I'm going to lose my integrity. Today is the day I'm going to waste my reputation. Today is the day I don't think anybody does that. But what happens is we make one bad decision and one bad decision, it's, it's like the genealogies. It begats another bad decision and begats another bad decision. And before you know it, the reputation has been compromised. Your integrity has been lost because you never stopped for just a moment and said, hold on, wait a minute. I don't need to make the first bad decision. But if you do, because you will, but if you do make a bad decision, don't compound it by keeping on going to Egypt. If you start off to Egypt and say halfway down the journey, this was really dumb. I shouldn't have gone to Egypt. Stop turn around that's what repentance is have the recognition but what happens is people continue along the journey compromise always starts with a small step don't take the first step and you never have to worry about the second step but we all need to be a people that identify our weaknesses that understand what it is that is probably not only going to tempt us and test us but where we are most likely to fail 
Allow me just a few moments to ask you about this. Are you self-aware enough spiritually to know if you are going to fail, I will fail in this arena? Do you know yourself? Do you know your own temptations? Do you know your own heart? Do you know where you're at that if you were honest before the Lord that you would say, God, you know and I know that this is a struggle for me. God, you know and I know that this is something in my life that if I go off the rails, I, I could see it being this. The most dangerous people spiritually in here are the people that couldn't answer that question when I asked it. If when I asked that question, you said, I can't think of anything, I'm worried about you. Because a spiritually wise person knows where their areas of weakness are and they identify them because if I've been identified them, now I can place the armor up in front. I can make decisions based on, well, you know that's a weakness of yours. I can get counsel when I know that's something that I failed at. You've got to be able to identify your weakness. But for Abraham, it, his was, and in, this, in, his, in general is a way that, that all of us struggle, is that he tended to rely on the arm of flesh rather than relying on the Lord. That's the whole reason he would have gone to Egypt in the first place. And so, as that happens, we need to understand the difference in a test and a temptation. Are they the same thing? Does God test people? Why does God, we've established that, why does God test people? Because God doesn't know what's going to happen and He wants to see what you're going to do, right? No, we covered that last week. God knows exactly what you're going to do, but the reason that He tests you is to expose your own heart so you will find out how you will behave or how you will react or how you will think when you were tested so that you can grow in Him. So God tests you to grow your faith. Satan tempts you to destroy your faith. Now, these two things, it's strange enough, can coincide because you can be tested and Satan can take that test and turn it into a temptation and where God desires for you to succeed in the test or if you fail the test to grow from that, Satan wants to take your failure of the temptation and then use it to ruin your life, ruin your character, ruin your reputation, and ruin your faith. And once we know that, we begin to see the spiritual battle that's taking place inside hearts. So Abram starts to Egypt, gets down there, and looks over at his wife, and I guess just has one of those moments. He says, my wife's kind of hot. I mean, my wife is good looking. I mean, at this point, we know she's an older woman but she has still got it going on. And so he looks over at her and he says, hey, look, uh, do me a favor. When we get down there, there's going to be some men and they're going to like what they see when you walk by. And I'm afraid that you are so good looking that when they find out you're married to me, they're going to kill me to take you. So when we walk by and we're introducing ourselves to people, don't tell them you're my wife. Tell him, you're my sister. This is a man who is listed in Hebrews 11 as a hero of faith. Now, let me give you the full story. 
it was actually what some people would call a white lie because white lies are lies that contain truths but are still total lies. And the reason it was a white lie is she was his sister. I just got your attention. They, Sarah was Abram's half-sister, all right? So when we think about that, it's weird, but it's true. Sarah and Abraham had the same dad, but they had different moms. And some of you are like, this story just got off the rails, man. What are you talking about? In the patriarchal times, there had been no decree against that. There is a decree against that now. So just because this is a description does not mean it is a prescription. You understand the difference? A description is telling you this is what happened. A prescription is, go ye therefore and do likewise, all right? It is not, in case anybody reads this passage and you are tempted to leave here, it is not okay to marry your sister, even a half one, all right? But that's the situation. So Abram takes and uses that white lie, we're going forward, tell them this. But here's the big problem with that. He told this lie hoping to save his own skin, but you can see a character issue too because even the lying may have put him in a better position because it saved his skin. It got his wife kidnapped. Now, can you imagine this, these moments? His wife is taken, put in the harem of a pharaoh. His wife is gone. Abram, I don't know how he's feeling at this point. They gave him a bunch of cows and donkeys, but his wife's in a harem, and he's left to think, well, what's happening to her right now? What's going on right now? Not to mention, poor Sarah is now kidnapped and placed in a harem, doesn't know if she'll ever get out, doesn't know what her, hair, what her life is going to look like. And I can't imagine, even though we consider Abram a hero of faith, I doubt Sarah thought he was much of a hero when she was kidnapped. Do you? This cowardly, lying husband I've got didn't care enough that all he wanted to do was save his own skin, so he, we lied our way out of that, saying that it was going to save him, but it doesn't look like it saved me. So I know what a lot of you are thinking. we got to answer the question. She became part of a Pharaoh's harem. She was taken by him. But what we find out was there, there was no sexual behavior that took place between the Pharaoh and Sarah. Why? If he's the king and he took her and she was beautiful, why was there not a consummation of this marriage? This is why. They didn't have EPT tests. I got your attention. There were no pregnancy tests. So what they would do is if you came into a harem, you were placed for two to three months, you would be sealed off, and no man would be allowed to touch you because they had to make sure that you weren't pregnant by another man so that if the king or the pharaoh then took you in and got you pregnant, they could guarantee that the baby was the baby of the king or the pharaoh. So she is in this waiting period to make sure that she's not pregnant while all the rest of this is going on. Now, while all that's taking place, I, 
we need to address the issue of lying. We live in a culture that is absolutely inundated with lies. There are a lot of people that would rather lie than tell the truth when the truth sounds better than the lie. Lying is a serious issue. It's a character issue. It never puts you in a better position long term. It is trying to handle things without God. It is an attempt to justify and rationalize and excuse and minimize. And the problem with lying, not just from a moral standpoint, but, but, but this, is, this is what happens when you lie. Lying makes your life harder. You know why? Because you have to remember what you lied about. And then you have to tell another lie to cover up that lie. And also, if you don't think character building is serious, listen to me, you, you start making a habit of lying and cheating and all of that, you think, oh, that's no big deal, you'll be a liar and cheater the rest of your life. Because you are building character. What we know about Abraham, and I find this fascinating, is that he not only used this lie this time, but if you continue to read the story, you find out in chapter 20, he tells the same lie again to Abimelech. And he lied so much that his son learned how to lie. And then in chapter 26, Isaac uses the same lie again. So he is a liar. He taught his son to be a liar, and it happened over and over again. And you say, well, this is, he, he, he had to lie. That's what we tell ourselves. Well, well I had to lie. Now I recognize some of you right now, we're talking about moral issues and, and obviously telling the truth. You've got to be somebody that's willing to tell the truth. It takes intestinal fortitude to tell the truth. Now, I'm not telling you to be dumb. Men, if you're married and your wife asks you, do I look fat in this outfit? You look great all the time. Right? If you're married, you lie. But I'm serious about when you think about a character issue of what this looks like, of am I constantly trying to bend the truth, trying to, to get out from under things, trying to do everything that I can to try to put myself in the best light? Am I unwilling to tell the truth? Do I tell people what they want to hear? Or am I someone who is known for telling the truth? You see, for Abraham, by saying that he was her brother, a brother in those times had authority and you had to go through the brother if the father was not there. And so while all this is taking place, you, it looks like that this supposed friend of God, everything is falling apart. But the beautiful thing in this story is that where Abram failed Sarah, God didn't. And I want you to see what happens. It's an incredibly fascinating story. She goes into the harem, and what does God do? He inflicts the whole household. Everybody there got a disease. Now, it's interesting to me because we aren't told the details. How did Pharaoh find out that she was Abram's wife and not his sister? The Bible doesn't tell us that. I'm going to infer something that I can't prove, but I think this is, I, I, think, I, I think we're here. If you look around and everybody in your household has a disease, but one person, I want to do some investigation into this one person. 
And the one person was Sarah. So he knows something's up. And what's incredible is, is that Pharaoh now, Abram's sent to be a light to the world, that he's going to, he, the declaration of God. But now Pharaoh's introduction to the God of the Bible is that his greatest servant is a lying thief. So he loses not only his integrity with his wife and with his family, but he loses it in front of a pagan king. Because what's he going to say now? Let me tell you about my God. And you know that's how a lot of people want to do with evangelism? You live like hell and then want to tell people about Jesus. I am all for evangelism, but sometimes we need to look at our life and say, is there any righteousness? Is there any holiness? Would anybody want to listen? Abram wasn't the man to preach to Pharaoh because he had lost that. He had lost that integrity with his wife. He had lost that integrity with Pharaoh. And the way that we behave, it affects more than just us. Do you know that? It affects more than us. It obviously affected Sarah. Bless her heart. That's in like the southern translation of the Bible. But it obviously affected Pharaoh. This was a man who would have been polytheistic, and maybe had he seen the glory and grandeur of God through Abram, who knows? That's not on the table. But do you know somebody else it affected? There was a younger man that was traveling with him. He had a nephew. His name was Lot. And in the next passage, if you cheat and read on ahead, you're going to find that Abram and Lot separate. And that Abram gives Lot the choice. And that Lot goes towards two cities, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And why did Lot choose those two cities? Because they reminded him of Egypt. If they had never been to Egypt, Lot would have never been exposed to Egypt. And having never been exposed to Egypt, he would never have been tempted by Egypt, and the world would not have been that way. So I'm telling you, quit believing the lie that this is just my sin. It's not just your sin. Your family's affected. Your church is affected. Your community is affected. When you have secret sin or open sin, it matters it affects people it affects you it affects the people that are around you and we see that loud and clear but i find it a little bit ironic in this passage that god uses a pagan king to rebuke the one that he called and made a covenant with did you see that pharaoh said what are you doing man you should have told me this was your wife why'd you lie to me that's one of the craziest rebukes in all of Scripture. A pagan king rebuking Father Abraham. Because the pagan king in all of his paganism knew that what Abram had done was wrong. And so as we flesh out this story, we see that he sends Abram on his way. And if you don't understand parts of the Bible, you can understand this part. What does Pharaoh tell him at the end? Get out of here. Get your wife, get your stuff, everything that I've given you, get out. It took the pagan king to drive him back to the place that he never should have left. So Abram, it tells us, leaves, and he leaves an incredibly wealthy man. That's one of the reasons I think we need to point out, too, that wealth does not always point out that someone has been godly. The sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. And just because someone, and don't believe this 
pagan lie that every person that experiences financial wealth, that somehow those are the ones that have received the ultimate blessings from God. Abram gets incredibly wealthy. One of the reasons is he's bought off because of a lie. Well, that's your brother. We better keep him happy and gives him stuff. But what they don't realize is happening in the midst of this is that he's got livestock, he's got servants, but among those servants that he left with was a woman. If you've cheated and read ahead, do you happen to know her name? Hagar. Hagar would eventually be the maidservant, and we'll see this, that Sarah had the big idea, hey, I'm barren, I can't have any kids. Why don't you take Hagar and get her pregnant? And this friend of God and man of God, instead of saying, no, baby, my covenant was with you, and I love you, and God said, I'm going to have a baby with you. Abram says, okay. And he goes and he gets her pregnant. She has a baby. Anybody remember the name of the baby? Ishmael and God promised that he would be the father of a great nation as well and God kept his promise and Ishmael is the father of every Arab nation that is still a thorn in the side to Israel and it all started because Abram went to Egypt and lied when he should have never been there and yes he left with great wealth but he also left with Hagar and I'm telling you friends sometimes you think you escape a situation unscathed and you think oh I didn't get punished from that it wasn't a big idea your sin finds you consequences are real i'm not talking about that you can't be forgiven absolutely the blood of jesus separates our sin but even when we're forgiven even when the penalty of sin eternally has been removed that doesn't mean that there aren't real life consequences that real things don't happen you want to act stupid and you want to act sinful and you want to act disobedient friends it may be that it seems like for a week a month even a year that you got away with it friends you need to know then when we make ungodly, unholy, unrighteous choices, there are consequences. Hagar and Ishmael are a highlight of just that. The price for sin is always higher than we realize. We never get away with it, even when we may avoid the immediate consequences. But there's something else in this passage that, that we just can't, can't ignore. And that is that time in Egypt is wasted because we can't grow outside of God's will. There are many Christian people who have wasted a lot of time in Egypt. Many people who have been called by God and heard the new covenant of God and received the promise of God, but after having heard the call and received the covenant, you have spent so much time in Egypt there are some people here right now that are grieving over the lost years. You look back and you think, what might have been? How could I have been growing? How could I have been moving towards the Lord? How could I have been experiencing life change? How could I have been impacting other people? How could my high school years have been different? How could it have been different in college? How, when I was young married, could it have been different? You've been in Egypt! And when you spend all that time in Egypt, when you finally come back, praise God, if you do come back, you receive the grace of God. But even when you receive the grace of God, there ought to be some godly sorrow in our heart because the time spent in Egypt was wasted time. It's not that God can't redeem it. 
But it is absolutely that if you're spending time away from where God wants you to be, whether you're in junior high or college or whether you're a senior adult, you need to know that those are wasted years. And I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste my time judging my, by my genetics. I'm over halfway done. I mean, I, I may make it to 90, but chances are good. I'm not being negative. I'm being real. I'm 44 years old. You double that, I'm 88. That's pretty ripe. Now, why am I telling you that? Because if God gives me 44 more years, I don't want to spend them in Egypt. I don't want to spend them in Egypt. But I guess this is my favorite part. I guess this is my favorite part. God has given this one man. You remember the call didn't come to a group of people. It came to one man. Came to Abram, and there's no reason to know if he even knew who God was. And God calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And so far, the story of Abraham's life is not the story of a hero of faith. It's a story of a hero God, right? But watch what happens next. God has every reason, every reason to say, I called you, you didn't go where I told you to go, you brought your daddy and your nephew and I told you not to do that, it took you forever to do what I told you to do, once you got there, I tested you with a little bit of famine, you've, you've lost that test, you went to Egypt, you went to Egypt, you lied about your wife and got her kidnapped, and yet through all of this, what does the last verse that we just read say? Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. And where did Abram go back to? He went back to Canaan. He went back to the promised land. I guess the greatest, most beautiful picture in this passage is that God allowed him to go back to Canaan. I told you to go there and you took forever to get there. Once I got you there, you wouldn't trust me to keep you there and you left. But even after that, God still allows him to go back. People want to talk about that my God in the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. He is a God of love and a God of grace and a God of sovereignty all through Scripture. And in this passage, we see at this point, anyone would say, Abram, I tried with you, brother. I gave you every chance in the world. At every juncture so far, you have failed and failed miserably. But yet what we find is God doesn't do any of that. God says it's time to go home. Friends, I want to tell you that's one of the most beautiful things about the grace of God. Not only does God call you out of your sin and earth the Chaldees, not only does He move you to a place of promise in the new covenant, but when you're prone to wander, Lord, you feel it, prone to leave the God you love, and you find yourself in Egypt, and God has every reason to say, I've shown them love, and I've shown them grace, and I've shown them mercy, and I've done everything, and they still left my heart. Then He still leaves the doors of Canaan open into the repentant heart. He allows you back in. That's what repentance is. And the gospel is not just for those people who have 
not given their life to Christ, the gospel is for all of us, even those who have given our life to Christ, because what we recognize is that the grace of God in bringing us back by repentance and by His grace is absolutely incredible. I want to share with you the second verse of the most well-known hymn in all of history. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that did what? Brought me safe thus far. But guess what else grace is going to do? And grace will lead me home. leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known.